Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content, like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast, it's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonster.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com. Hello, listener, and welcome to Great Designs. My name is Tim Kilfoyle, and I'm happy to host our Great Designs podcast, shining light on the complicated world of electronic design. Great design can be a challenge on its own, but it can be tougher to know where and how to get good information. We know this, and we help navigate through it every day. We built the Great Designs podcast to be a low-pressure, content-rich environment with topics that matter to you. Make us a regular stop and be informed. So thanks everyone for tuning in today. It's great to have Walter Tobin with us today to answer some questions. Walter is the head of the ERA, which is the, he he leads the team, which he describes as small but mighty uh, within the ERA national organization. So Walter, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate it. So the ERA is the industry trade organization that, that, that I'm a member of and that Walter leads. But Walter, I don't have... Great background on the beginning of your career. I know that when you entered, I knew your name from Future Electronics. And I know that at some point in your past, you were with Pioneer Electronics. But I'm hoping that you can describe, frankly, for me, I'm interested in knowing when you got into this industry, where were you and where have you come since then? Well, let me let me go back into the ancient history, uh, Tim. Uh, I graduated uh, from Boston College uh, and then got my MBA at Boston College and then Spent two years on active duty as a U.S. Army captain uh, and got out of uh, the service and uh, entered uh, a job as a buyer at a distributorship called Kramer Electronics in, in Boston, Massachusetts, as a buyer of relays and switches and capacitors. So I get into the industry, started in distribution at Kramer, and uh, they ended up being the first distributor to be acquired by Arrow in 1979 and 1980. So um, I get into the industry sort of uh, by accident, as I think a lot of us did. I answered an ad as a buyer's job for, for this company. I don't have an electronics background. I don't have a double E, but uh, ended up joining as a buyer and spent a year as a buyer and then went on the road as a salesperson and spent my career in distribution uh, at both Arrow and then uh, Pioneer and then uh, Future Electronics. So. Uh, that's how I got to uh, where I got to. Wow. So no, my, my question on influence then was strictly you needed a job or wanted a job, but did you, were you seeking electronics or was it just an ad and you just answered and, and that's how you found it? I answered an ad back in the day, they put ads in newspapers uh, and I answered an ad. What attracted me to the, to the job was uh, it was a high tech industry, you know, uh, in the Boston area, it used to be the, high-tech capital back in the day. There was companies like Digital Equipment and Sanders Associates and Data General and Prime and Wang. Uh, it was a big high-tech area. So I was I like to be in a growth industry, uh, state-of-the-art industry. But uh, that's really what attracted me to uh, this company was that it seemed like it was an area that was growing uh, in electronics. And uh, not that I knew anything about electronics. I didn't. I just knew that Looked like it was a pretty fascinating area to uh, an industry to get into. Yeah, well, that is interesting. So many people I know, myself included, I also don't have a double E, but I got into it, frankly, because of the family. But um, my grandfather got into it in a very similar way uh, to you. So military, you mentioned in, in your background, you've got military. You said two years as an army captain. Did I hear that right? Yes, I spent uh, two years active duty. And then I spent about eight years in the active reserves. Uh, here in Boston, and uh, uh, loved my time in the service. But it was uh, we had we were married. We started to have kids, and uh, it was time for me to uh, resign my commission uh, from the reserves. And you know, sort of, I was on the road as a salesperson for a distributor, and a lot of travel, and uh, wanted to focus on raising a family and uh, being as home as much as I could. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. I I did some digging to see if I could find the history online and all I could find I actually had seen a LinkedIn 
post that you had done on maybe Memorial Day or on Veterans Day. So I had some suspicion that there was a military background there. So thanks for sharing that. Well, as far as the ERA goes, it's great to have you at the head of the ERA. I've told many people that I, I know looking back, I'm going to be so proud to have had you at the head, but really proud to have been in the industry at the time that you're here because I didn't get a chance to really know you before you joined ERA, but it's been a pleasure to get to know you and have you at the helm steering the organization. The people you've got are great. We really enjoy working with them. So thanks. Well, thank you. And uh, again, your company has great industry DNA, Tim. You go back second or third generation rep company. So kudos to you and your family for uh, you know running a successful uh, organization and continue to run it. So well done. Yeah, well, thanks. Thank you. So now I want to just ask you about uh, the industry. So being in this role, and I, to be honest, Walter, I didn't not I didn't actually know all of that history. So you've been in this industry since day one. So I feel much better about asking you these questions. Sure. So from your perch, I, I say, in the industry at the head of the ERA, but also having come through distribution, having come through the buyer's desk at, at uh, within distri- distribution, you've seen it. You've seen the industry move. You've seen the customers, the the distributors grow, the manufacturers. My curiosity is, as you look forward, if you're if you're looking down or looking out toward the horizon, is there a trend or are there two trends in the industry that you think maybe reps, selfishly I'll ask, but also suppliers really need to get ahead of as we look forward three, five years down the road? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, so I think a couple of things that, that really jump out, uh, you know, Historically, the last 10, 15 years, we've seen some uh, major manufacturers, primarily in the semiconductor group, uh, you know, go from a rep sales model to a direct sales model. And uh, I think in some cases, uh, they may think that the rep sales model is either better or they have more control. They don't have competing technologies on there. And uh, I would I would certainly maintain that. the rep sales model is, in fact, a direct sales model. I mean, the, the 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 reps are in the market. They're selling your product direct. They do have an advantage, I think, over a, a person working for a manufacturer is they have a complementary technology. So the reps go in with a solution sell versus just trying to sell one manufacturer. Uh, you know, so they always have things to talk about. And so I think that the, the impression that the rep model is somehow subservient or in a second-class position to the direct sales model is a myth. Uh, the difference is that the rep doesn't have a business card that says the manufacturer's name, but they're selling. I think they're, they're, more, they're more adaptable. They're more uh, willing to get or more able to get a, an audience with the customer because they have many things to talk about. And I think they really provide a better value for the customer to see them because they do have many multiple things to go over. Uh, so I think that's the first sort of myth that I'm trying to dispel, that the rep sales model is is in many cases, if not all cases, more effective and a better value for the for the manufacturer. I think the second, the second uh, area that we're trying to get ahead of is, is succession planning. You know, most reps today, are, some of them are second or third generation, And uh, each rep company, whether they're first generation or whatever, needs to have a strong succession plan in place. Uh, You know, as our industry gets gets, uh, uh, longer in the tooth, as we all get older, I think manufacturers certainly look at a rep company and see what is the succession plan or the rep company. Do they have one? And so that's part of not only articulating the succession plan, but also continuing to hire younger people hopefully double E's that can come into the company and help, uh, you know, restock the pond, if you will, and help that rep company continue to grow and show their principles that they're going to be around for a long time. So I think those two areas uh, would be uh, continue to articulate the rep model and also really advocate for the reps to have a well-known and solid succession plan uh, enabled by uh, hiring younger people. Yeah, so that... Uh, true among us as well as third generation we've done we've gone through that process a, a couple of times obviously and it is something that i know the era offers through the services that you have both on the website and then at the office but it it's definitely something that we have well we frankly have, have acquired a couple of 
companies just over the past 12 months and three over the past, uh, you know, two years prior to that. So there are tricks to that that make it right. um, easier and something that has to get uh, looked at closely. But having the ERA look at that uh, and help us with that is definitely a benefit. So sure. I agree with those those two sentiments. And of course, we didn't. Uh, you didn't tell me that you were going to bring that up, but but I want to to just pick on that for one second. So. I see that's a succession planning being important also. I see a lot of systems being required in businesses that are traditionally mom and pop. So I, I want to just describe for you one of the things I see in the market, and I want you to just sort of comment on this for me, is I look at our industry, and I'll tell you that the industry is changing. It's undeniable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would say that, people in distribution would say that, et cetera. I do hear frequently, though, well, it's just a few new systems, or it's just a new way of tracking the funnel or the opportunities are just being managed in a CRM, but really underlying it's all the same. So there's several different thoughts I have on this, but the one, the one that I want to mention here is what I call the sphere of the transaction. So you've got a manufacturer of a component part, let's say ST micro, I'm just pick, could be any name. They're giant. They're, they're huge. They've scaled up to billion dollars in size. You've got a distributor like Arrow or Future or you name it, TTI, scaled up to billion dollars in size. You've got an end customer, you name it. You've got Bose up there in your neighborhood, but it could be anybody, billion dollar in size. And then you've got the rep. Now, the rep isn't even close to a billion dollar in size. He's not going to scale up to nearly as big as the customer or distributor or manufacturer is going to be. Yet here he is as as an important part of this sphere of the transaction, as I say. But he can't just stay the same size or she can't just stay the same size or can they? My question is, as these companies scale and get bigger and the industry scales and gets bigger, what has to happen to the rep? Yes, we have to have a a smooth succession plan. We have to have systems in place, et cetera. But is, is there something else fundamental that you see that has to change either among reps or in the industry to support what have always been mom and pop and I don't mean that in a pejorative sort of way, but a mom and pop operation, just family style businesses. Well, the the industry has certainly changed dramatically. It's not just new tools and the same story. The industry's dramatically changed, continues to change, and it's changed forever. You know, uh, today uh, customers have instant access to worldwide pricing at their desk, instant access to worldwide technology, data sheets. They don't need the rep or the distributor salesperson to come in and deliver technology. They also have instant access to worldwide pricing, uh, you know, which in some cases the lowest price in the world, anywhere in the world. And that's given the, the buyer or the engineer uh, a big advantage uh, in the database that they've, that they've established. Uh, what, what the reps need to do is continue to uh, better articulate their value proposition. And, you know, there's a saying that you want to become, you always want to get, you know, first call and last look. Uh, you want to become that trusted resource for the customer. The customers may be able to look at different products on the website, may be able to download data sheets. But in a lot of cases, they need that in-person or video call uh, a product demo to help them decide what's the best solution for their particular uh, uh, need, their particular design. That's where the rep comes in. The rep can really give them uh, really unvarnished uh, advice. And in some cases may decide, you know what, the line I represent may not be the best solution. Uh, it may be some other solution. If the customer values you and trusts you uh, to the point where you decide that somebody else, you're going to get the first call next time because they'll trust you to give them the right advice as opposed to you should design my product in and they find out later it wasn't the best solution. So the industry really has changed as far as the rep sort of being disintermediated by the size of the the, the giants. Uh, I think that's become a big advantage for the rep. The fact that the rep continues to be small or maybe multi-regional, you know, multi-regional doesn't imply that you're big. You're just a bunch of uh, rep companies crocheted together, maybe under one, under, under one ownership. I think that gives a big advantage. Because you know the nuances of the territory, you know the nuances of the customer. You know, you may not be a cell phone market, you may not be a military market, so you can guide your manufacturers into what products that they manufacture are, are applicable into your territory. 
So I don't think the rep, uh, you know, losing mass to these bigger companies, bigger um, distributors and manufacturers, I think it, it's, a, it's a big advantage that they still stay close to the ground, connected to the customer, and stay within their, uh, their fences of their, of their territory. Yeah. And I don't, I, I, in fact, I agree. And I'll just mention that because I think about these subjects frequently as a rep and I'm watching what's going on around us in the industry. And I see these people with larger and larger line cards, which really can translate to a much more crowded grocery shelf. I always use Mm -hmm. the potato chip aisle as my example and whether or not it's better to have more, better to have less. But if you just think for a second, having more significantly more 20 manufacturers per category, don't you think that a product manager is going to have a much more difficult time discussing or, you know, strategizing with their manufacturer now if they've got 20 of them to manage in a particular category than if they had five? Uh, in my mind, it would seem like the rep's going to have a much more pivotal role with respect to communication in that regard. The, the discussion is going to be more important. They're going to be more important to the manufacturer and to the distributor. But so that's just, I'm just sharing a thought there. But on that topic of crowded grocery store shelves, I want to ask, you know, I think about people like TTI. When I started in this business, 93, 94, they were the specialists, passive components, and that's right. it. You want a resistor, that's where you go. Well, I counted last week. And TTI, the specialist, which is great. We're as close to them as we are to any distributor. But they have 213, and I'm not counting Mauser, and I'm not counting Symmetry. I'm just counting TTI. 213 manufactured on the line card. It shocked me. I hadn't counted it for a long time. But my question to you is, is a distributor shelf with 15 manufacturers of a category, whether it's power semiconductors or MLCCs, is that better than a distributor with seven manufacturers in a particular category? Is the day, you know, is our new normal, as they say, that the giants have arrived and in order to survive, that's what you have to be as a giant? Well, I, I think it's a great question. You know, coming from a distribution background, the distributors are always looking at, you know, their return on return on assets employed, return on inventory, inventory turns. Uh, you know, they have they have the metrics to me. So they're not going to put on 15 different, uh, you know, uh, manufacturers that make the same thing uh, because of duplication of, of effort and, you know, redundancy of inventory. They have it really to hedge their bets. If, if some supplier uh, is out of stock, they have somebody as a backup. They also rely on print position. If some manufacturer has a higher print position, they want to have the Wonder Bread versus the Kilfoyle Bread on their shelf because more people are designing in Wonder Bread. Sure. So it's a hard thing to uh, to uh, you know to respond to um, the distributor. The distributor's job is to is to fill uh, or support you know unforecasted demand inside manufacturer's lead time. That's the role of distribution. I mean, in a perfect world, if the customer knew what they wanted and when they wanted it and had lead time of twelve weeks, they buy everything direct. But they don't. They they have unforecasted demand. They can't wait 12 weeks. So they come to the distributor shelf and the distributor wants to be able to support the customer's need almost irregardless of what brand they wanted. So, uh, you know, uh, it's a hard thing to decide whether five is, is better than, than 10. Uh, it really is up to the, the uh, manufacturer, their print position and the ability. The distributor wants to be able to support that that customer's order on first call by having the inventory and satisfy that need so they don't have to call some other distributor. But it is a balancing act that the distributors have to make uh, every day. They have to decide where to put the inventory. But it's not an easy uh, uh, juggling act to uh, perform. Yeah. So let me, I, so this is the question you and I have talked before about, I'll call it the Walmart effect, what Walmart did to retail across parts of the country, especially in smaller towns. Sure. So one of the things I think about when I think of our industry, and I'm just talking here, the large scaling distributors, often in a situation like that, a vacuum will form behind them where you get smaller distributors who fill the void and they become successful because because they are smaller and they're more agile and they can do things in the market that maybe the larger companies can't. In Walmart's case, that didn't exactly happen. They ended up really eliminating so much of what was behind them. The smaller stores really didn't 
fill in the void the way that you may have expected. You know, they just kept growing and growing and growing and things were, were left in the dust behind them. So when I look at the distributors today, the big ones scaling up from single billions to, to double billion, double digit billions, I don't see the small ones behind them. I see there are some. I mean, I see Rob Tavi, who's doing great with digital marketing and, and online content, and he's really building a good business. I see Hughes Peters, which is buying companies here and there to fill out more of a regional play. I, I don't see the volume of new entrants that I might have expected as I see the large ones scaling up. And as those large ones scale up, they add all of these additional services and so forth. I'm just curious on your thoughts regarding moving forward in the industry. This is probably a 10-year look forward. Do you think that there is my theory there on the vacuum forming behind it to fill in with smaller companies? Do you think that will play out? Well, it's interesting, uh, Tim, if you look back on the history of distribution, you know, how do the two large publicly traded distributors get so big? It was through acquisition. So unlike Walmart, you know, they they bought the companies and they provided, you know, uh, in many cases, employment for uh, many of the employees of the acquired company. You know, they bought them to acquire, in some cases, different territories to go into. In some cases, they wanted to get additional franchises. Uh, but, you know, each of the two large publicly traded distributors have probably each acquired over 30 distributors. So back in the day, there was a lot more distributors that were that were. Uh, uh, available to a buyer to use. And yet, as any industry gets more mature, you have consolidation and usually have uh, margin erosion. So uh, today, we have seen uh, new distributors pop up. They're specialists. They focus on generally a particular technology uh, or a niche uh, in the market. Maybe they're focusing on you know, uh, uh, value added, you know, like you mentioned, Hughes Peters, I know they have a very vibrant value added offering. You mentioned some of the, some other distributors that do interconnect. So I, I, it's, a, it's a very expensive business to get into. You know, uh, most, if you look at any distributor, they really only have two assets. They have inventory and accounts receivable. And that really is it. You know, they might own a building, they might own some land, but they're constantly trying to juggle the the, you know, buying enough inventory so they can sell it. If they buy too much, they don't sell it, there's cash flow. If they sell it, the inventory don't collect the money, there's cash flow. So th- the thing that's that's holding them back is the ability or the, the availability of franchises. So if I started up, if you started up a distributorship in the Midwest, you would want to get product to sell. But you go to the suppliers, they'll say, Tim, I'm not putting on any additional distributors because I've already got at least one, if not both, of the of the large global people, and I've got one or one or two of the of the full service distributors. So, what value are you going to bring? So, the 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 lack of availability of franchises, number one, is really causing the 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 uh, the or preventing new new companies from opening up. But it's also the availability of cash. It's a very cash intensive business. Uh, so I don't think you'll see a lot of new distributors start up. I think the consolidation is probably done uh, in the industry, and uh, I think I think everybody's sort of settling into their own lane. Um, and yet you've seen some specialists, uh, you know, really really grab their own market and really make a nice business for themselves. Yep. So as we exit. Well, I can't predict that we're going to exit this supply chain issue that we've been experiencing for the past couple of years. But as we do, it'll eventually come. Uh, so in light of the market that we're in, in now and in these large players, as we come out of these these days of long lead times and constrained uh, supply chain, is is there a power struggle that you see developing in the industry? And I mean to say among the players of, say, the OEM customers, maybe the the, the supply, um, the manufacturers of components, as well as distributors. Is there any power play that you predict that would happen or that you see developing or something that could be a fallout from this particular time in the market? I mean, it's it's been tight now for two years. It's being predicted to be tight throughout the next uh, 15, 18 months. Is there anything that you can can predict that would be fallout from this uh, from this market or maybe some power struggle that could be developing in the industry as it relates to what we've come through? So I think, Tim, the last two years have shown the 
continued need for cooperation among the manufacturer, the rep, and the distributor. All three of those constituents working hard to support the end customer. Uh, you know, maybe in the past there was some uh, perhaps perceived competition between the rep and the distributor. You know, there's built-in conflict, but there's also built-in partnership. You know, if I'm a distributor and I and I have uh, the Kemet line on my line card and you're the Kemet rep, but I also have AVX, well, all of a sudden I'm not only a partner to you, but I could be a competitor. And how do we navigate through that minefield to continue to work together to make sure that the customer is happy and make sure that our principals are happy? So the last two years have really shown the need of, of tremendous cooperation and communication between the manufacturer's reps and the distributors in the field on behalf of, the, of their manufacturers, their common manufacturers, to support the customer. The customers have ended up the last two years with a tremendous amount of unforecasted demand inside the lead time. You know, you think back when the pandemic hit, you know, who would have predicted, did Chrome forecast to, to sell, you know, 300 gazillion Chromebooks to all the, every student in the, in the United States? That was unforecasted demand. You think a Chromebook has a few, a few electronic components in it? That, where did all that capacity come from? You know, remember ventilators, we couldn't get ventilators. That was unforecasted demand, and yet everybody expected that, well, somebody's got to have the inventory, and they counted on the distributor, whether they yelled at the rep, why don't you have it, the manufacturers, why can't you build more? And, and it, it really demonstrated that the, 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 fra the, uh, the fragileness of the, of the supply chain, and that all the model, all the programs we put in place the last 15 years with Kanban and just-in-time manufacturing and and blockchain and everything was measured to make sure that I didn't have any inventory in my in my supply chain. I wanted to have it on somebody else's PL. Because inventory is a dirty word on Wall Street. They don't want inventory, uh, working capital tied up in inventory. So when when the when the uh, pandemic hit, nobody had nobody had any extra inventory and everybody was running around and they all looked at the distributors. Well that's your job. Well I buy the inventory based on the forecast I get from the customers, number one, and the lead times I get from the manufacturer. And it ended up that on both ends of the supply chain, the numbers were inaccurate. Not by, not by design, but the customers really didn't know how much they needed, and there was a big spike in unforecasted demand. The manufacturers are, are building factories to meet that 12-week lead time. People came in and said, I need it in six weeks. Well, I can't spin up a, a new fab line. I can't build a new factory. So the whole thing was the supply chain was was weak with any amount of excess inventory to allow for unforecasted demand inside a lead time. And that was really, really what happened. So I think, to answer your question, what this has shown is a continued need for cooperation. We need to have complete openness and transparency of the supply chain. And, you know, are the lead times that a manufacturer puts on their website, are they real? Well, why wouldn't they be real? Because I'm a manufacturer of capacitors, and my lead time goes from 12 weeks to 26 weeks. Am I, do I want to put that on my website? Because my competitor will, will maybe say, oh, Tobin's lead time just went to 26 weeks and go after my customers. So maybe there's a reluctance to have 100% openness and transparency. And then the other end of the supply chain is we'd love to get accurate forecasts from the customers. And in many cases, they continue to get orders from customers that are unplanned. They put that extra demand in, and it's, it's unforecasted inside a lead time. So the whole thing, we're trying to, I think in many cases, Tim, we're, we're, we're just transmitting bad information faster. You know, with all the automation of tools and buyers, APIs, and all that, uh, we need to have accurate forecasts from customers accurate lead times from the manufacturers and uh, and openness and transparency. And uh, I hope that will come someday, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really optimistic. Yep. Well, that's, there's probably some market intelligence people don't want to share, as you mentioned. So I, I, exactly. I, as a competitive salesperson, I get that. So, well, that's great feedback though. I do appreciate you sharing that. I want to also, um, I feel like I've asked a lot of questions on distribution. I want to just kind of pivot to the rep. You and I just came back from EDS, the Electronic Distributor Show, out in Vegas. 
Right. And I think we both were healthy when we got back. I know I never got sick after it. I've heard rumors of people getting sick out there with COVID. There's maybe a little uh, pocket of it out there. But I want to ask on, as I was there, we met with several different people. different rep organizations. I just like to talk to different reps around the country. And and the one topic that everyone comes sort of together on is this topic of, of digital marketing, marketing in general, data capture, data usage. What are you doing with the data you get? Can you do anything to make it, uh, you know, actionable, as they say, in order to drive your business? So we all talk about it, but I'm just curious from your perspective, you talk to reps all around the com- the country as well. Which side of this are, are today's reps coming down on? And I mean to say unprepared or better prepared or, you know, where, where are they on this topic? Are people investing in it the right way? I think everyone's agreed that it's where we have to go, but I'm curious, where do you see reps falling on this? Well, it's a, it's all over the map. Uh, I think if you look at the more progressive rep companies, like frankly, like your company, Tim, uh, start with their website. Uh, y- you could be horrified by going into some manufacturer's rep website that they show nothing but a picture of a PC board. And if you want information, send an email to info at tim.org. Nobody ever looks at that stuff on their website. So the websites are, 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 are bare bones. Uh, they may not list their manufacturers on their website. Uh, because of fear that the manufacturer is going to know what other lines they sell or the competition is going to know, uh, you know, which is, which I always find humorous. I mean, if I was a manufacturer and I wanted to put a rep on, and the rep I'm looking at doesn't list the lines on the website, well, that means they're not going to list my line. So I might just Amen. click out 100%. of there. I might just click. I'm not going to look at, you know, Tim's rep company. Um, yep. They don't list their people. They don't list email addresses. So, you know, the, the digital age really starts with the with the manuf- with the with the the rep company's website. I think that also um, when you look at um, the the trend towards the rep trying to take on more of a role of of marketing on behalf of the manufacturer, I think that is a big big advantage for the rep. In that, if I'm a manufacturer, I'm trying to service the whole country. I come out with new products. Some of the products may be applicable to my territory, some may not. The rep's advantage, and they know that they know their own territory, would be to take the collateral coming out of the manufacturer and customize it to their own region. The manufacturer doesn't have the time or the expertise to do that. So if I'm a capacity manufacturer and it's it's geared towards the cell phone industry or the military industry, you may say, hey, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take that those slides of that PowerPoint because it's not my market. Let me take these other products and customize it to my territory. So I think the reps really need to get on board with the whole digital age, the digitalization of, of the, of the uh, product and really help the manufacturer with the marketing because that is in fact the sweet spot of why a manufacturer wants to put a rep on. They know their own territory. They know the nuances of it and they know what's good, what should sell and what shouldn't sell? Um, the whole other conversation about the uh, the digitalization of our business, you know, when you think about if you buy from Amazon in the in the the B to C space, business through customer, you probably put an order on Amazon. They'll tell you when it was being picked at the factory. I'm kind of making this up. You know, when the driver picked it up, the driver just stopped for a cup of coffee. It's on its way down your street. They send you a picture when it was delivered. In the B2B world, today, if I'm an OEM customer and I want to know where my order is, generally, I have to either call the distributor or the rep or send them an email. They then take the email and send it to the distributor. The distributor sends an email to the manufacturer. It's crazy. Some manufacturers may allow you to go to a portal, but the information is not correct. So the whole B2B space is way behind in the age of automation. So we're still doing things with sticks and stones. Think about the last two years. How are you expediting product from your customers? You're probably doing it on an email or a phone call. You're not going, very seldom you're going into a portal to get delivery information because it's coming from overseas. They have to break it down in, in, in the dock. So the whole digitalization thing, we have a long way to go in the B2B space to making the process more automated and less manual. Yeah, agreed. And I'll tell you, Walter, it's, it's the interface that we often have with our manufacturers 
systems are, they start and stop at the CRM, right? That's the input we get is a CRM and that's all they'll give us. We've got, we've had manufacturers over the years who've had that, those sorts of systems that you're describing, but they wouldn't let the man, they wouldn't let the rep touch it. So it's one of those, I, it harkens back to an answer you had earlier regarding the transparency and the cooperation. And I, I really, I strive to have the manufacturers we sell for allow us access to those systems so that we can actually be much more seamlessly a team. And we're just not there with many of them, but hopefully in time that will come. So, so marketing is the realm of the rep. That was going to be a question for you, but it sounds to me like you believe that marketing could be the realm of the rep as we move forward. It's a big, it's the big advantage that the rep brings to the manufacturer because it's not a one size fits all from the manufacturer to, to North America. They would rely, if I'm a rep, I would go to the manufacturer and say, listen, let me customize. Let me show you how I can customize your product presentation for my market. The manufacturer doesn't have the time or the desire or the wherewithal to do that. That, to me, is the big, big advantage of the, of the rep model versus, the, uh, versus a direct model or a matrix model. And why manufacturers aren't proactively doing that instead of waiting for the manufacturer to come to them and demand from them to do it is a missed opportunity for the rep. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that the rep should embrace. We are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's an opportunity. And if you purport to be someone who knows the most about your territory and your customers, uh, then you shouldn't fear it. However, like anything, there's a cost involved with it. So I'm just curious to know, as we as reps move forward and we embrace this, as I just proposed, and you look at the costs involved with doing some of it, what do you think about you know, back in the day when I started, we talked a lot about co-op dollars on golf outings or co-op dollars on promotions. Uh, we rarely, if ever, push to our manufacturer to ask for support on this, but because this is something that's going to require, I'll, I'll say a significant investment if you do it the right way, what are your thoughts on cooperative dollars for manufacturers, specifically on marketing and marketing expenses? Boy, Tim, I think you're in a you're in a in a, in a golden opportunity area right now. Uh, a lot of the co-op dollars that manufacturers get asked for uh, to sponsor golf outings or you know some event, and the manufacturer in many cases will will give that. But I don't know of many reps that would go to the manufacturer saying, "Listen, let me come up with a customized." product pitch, a pitch pack in the old days, uh, and it's going to cost, it's going to take me 10 hours, five hours, three hours, uh, you know, are there, would you would you be available to give me three, four, five thousand dollars in co-op funds to do this? And once I deliver it, I'll, I'll show it to you. So you're getting some real value for, for your money. Uh, I think the manufacturer would probably fall on the floor if a rep asked them for co-op dollars. The other opportunity is for the rep to go to one of their uh, distributors for that line and say, listen, the distributors get co-op dollars from the manufacturer. What if we do a joint effort, the co-op, you know, to try to put together a promo uh, to sell this particular product and I'll partner with you as the as the distributor. You know, the other distributors might might be upset, but, you know, listen, hey, listen, I, you know, you didn't ask me to do it. I went to the distributor and uh, you developed a, a joint program between you as the rep and the distributor and get the monies from the manufacturer. That would be a very creative thing for the rep to do. I only know uh, of one instance recently that that happened, and the distributor almost fell on the floor. They said, oh, my God, a rep has never asked me. for. I get co-op dollars from the manufacturer. Let me go to them. And the, and the, the manufacturer says, now, that's a very creative approach. I've got my rep and my distributor working together, God forbid, to try to go sell product in that territory. It's a win-win. So I think the area of co-op dollars, you're, right, you're into a very fertile area that I would, I would encourage reps to uh, take a look at. Great. So I'll tell you, uh, we, we actually have done that with one of our manufacturers. We did it on a six-month block, and it, it actually worked out very well, and we expect yep. that we're going to continue to do that. So I do think it's another edge of the market that people are going to begin to, to push, uh, push out and push against because it's something that – you know, the one thing else, we, we do well with our manufacturers, we like our manufacturers, but in objectiveness, there is one area where many of them, there are some that are better than others, but I will just say that historically marketing has always been a weak spot 
Um, so I just, I think it's something that we would be smart to embrace and, and, and take over. And of course, Tim, if I can take just, over the whole budget, but I'm sorry, if I could just, uh, make another suggestion on the digital age is, um, you know, the use of video to embed videos on your, on your rep company's website. You know, as you know, if you, if you go in and, you know, look at the experts, the video should be no more than two minutes long. You know, to post, you know, if you can, you know, repurpose some of the manufacturer's PowerPoint presentations or run a short video on them rather than post a PowerPoint or a PDF, nobody's going to look at that. Uh, that would be another area to show, you know, not only your customers, but your manufacturers that you are a very high tech rep company. You're embracing the use of, of, uh, of the, the digital age, certainly you know, having a, an active presence on social media. Uh, you know, people, People use LinkedIn to, to, to look at short videos, uh, not long videos. So I would also encourage the incorporation of, uh, of videos uh, in, in the rep company's website. Yeah, again, I, I agree with that. As a share of the overall workforce, manufacturing has been dropping steadily ever since the Korean War ended, as other sectors of the U.S. economy have expanded much faster. From nearly a third, 32.1% of the country's total employment in 1953, manufacturing today has fallen to 8.5% of the overall workforce. Significant. 32% in 53 to 8.5% today. So that's the first thing. So I'm going to ask you to juxtapose that against these. Samsung announces a $17 billion advanced semiconductor fab site in Taylor, Texas. TSMC opens $12 billion site in Arizona, Intel a $20 billion site, $20 billion site in Ohio, TI, $30 billion site in Texas, Intel, two facilities in Arizona, Global Foundries, Cree, Wolfspeed, SK Group, Micron, all of them opening either R&D or production facilities in North America. How do those two things sort of jibe with one another? Is the manufacturing in North America going to continue to drop to a point where we're sending everything overseas and giving away the technology? Or are these new facilities in North America on the backs of these large semiconductor manufacturers going to either save or attract or build in North America? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Tim. If you look at manufacturing in North America, there is a lot of manufacturing being done in North America. Far and away, the largest manufacturing center of North America is Guadalajara, Mexico. Somebody told me if you take all the manufacturing in North America outside of Guadalajara and totaled it and doubled it and quadrupled it, you would you would be less than half of what's being manufactured in, in Guadalajara. These are obviously mostly large contract manufacturers that have uh, brought back manufacturing in some cases from their operations in Asia. Uh, back to North America. You know, the, years ago, why did, why did companies go to Asia? There was a big difference in the ASP. The, the component cost was a lot less in Asia than it is today. That has dramatically uh, uh, been reduced, if not its parity. The component price in, in North America is pretty close to what you could buy in Asia. And there was also at the time a big reduction in labor. You know, if you're paying somebody $20 an hour in Indiana, you're paying them $20 a month in, in Asia. And I'm just making up the numbers, but it's, sure. it was a dramatic reduction. Well, what's happened today, there's very little labor content in manufacturing. It's mostly robotics. What a lot of people don't talk about is, you know, the, the, the advent of robotics, the biggest threat that robotics poses is to Asia. So where the robotics industry is developing is going to have the most impact on, on manufacturing in China. Uh, because they're they're gonna they're gonna displace their own workers, so um, uh, big manufacturing is still going on in North America. The 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 issue of of putting manufacturing back in, let's say, the U.S. Um, you look at the semiconductor companies that are opening plants. Kudos to them for having the intestinal fortitude. To take twenty, thirty billion dollars, you know, Intel invested thirty billion in Ohio, you know, TI is investing twenty or thirty billion in Texas, uh, and kudos for them to 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 saying we're gonna we're gonna start building our semiconductors back in North America. Uh, 
they won't ship chip one until 2025. So it's another three years. It'll be interesting to see how Wall Street reacts to tying up 20 or 30 billion in working capital by building a factory, building a manufacturing facility. Uh, and I'm using both, both manufacturers, sort of the canary in the coal mine to see, you know, what happens and how Wall Street reacts. So I think that, um, the, the manufacturers, you know, the big semiconductor manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, are, are calling the shots. Uh, you know, it, Taiwan is still the, the major manufacturing center of semiconductors. You know, TSMC is one of the largest global foundries, probably the second largest. Uh, whether or not they decide to, you know, continue to open up fabs in North America remains to be seen. But I don't think you're going to see a broad scale of manufacturing. You know, they're not going to start building, you know, uh, uh, you know, ovens again in, uh, in, in GE Appliance Park or refrigerators. You know, that those days are gone. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, we'll continue to, you know, maybe have some niche manufacturers, I think sort of in the medical area, in the military area, maybe in robotics, uh, maybe there's some niche manufacturing, but U.S. manufacturing for the most part, uh, those days are probably, uh, for the most part gone. Yeah. It's too bad. I think you're, you're absolutely right about the comment on Wall Street and it's too bad that they're going to be judged on earnings per share, et cetera. And not really what they're going to be able to do for um, manufacturing of that that product here in in the U.S. Because so, they're doing the right thing, Tim. Yeah, sure. They're absolutely doing the right thing, and they're doing everything that everybody wants to be done. Everybody's saying, "Bravo!" You know, build American, buy American. And yet, if you're a shareholder of of one of the companies, and your in your 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 stock price goes down, or your 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 uh, dividend goes down, you decide to sell the stock. People vote with their feet in their wallet. They'll walk away. And I hope that I hope that TI and Intel have the uh, intestinal fortitude or spine to stay the course, because long term yeah. is the right thing to do. Yeah, agreed. So, um, in terms of your position at the ERA, I'm kind of curious to know. You do a great job promoting uh, the association and and companies like ours, and we really appreciate it. But personally, you came into the position, I presume, with something that you wanted to accomplish or some goal or some milepost, et cetera. And I just, I want to give you the chance to tell us what is it that you look to have in your rearview mirror at some point as your accomplishment within the ERA? I mean, there's plenty that, that our industry could use help with. And I mean to say manufacturers reps, and you've, you've mentioned a couple of those things. Succession planning has to be done. You have to have a good uh, cohesive unit of, of reps selling alongside distributors. So having a good team uh, and partnerships, et cetera. But is there something within the organization or something within the industry that you hope to have as an accomplishment when you look back on, on the years of success with the ERA? So I think what I've tried to do in joining ERA, I've never been a rep. I've never been a manufacturer. I was a distributor my whole career. And I work with reps, uh, some better than others in my career as a salesperson, as a general manager and a C-level uh, executive with distribution. Some reps I didn't work well with. Uh, some reps burned me. Some reps I burned in, in the, in the day-to-day battle of, uh, of selling. And I think that what I saw coming in was a, um, was everybody sort of, uh, holding their cars real close to the vest. You know, the reps perceive the channel as, as competitors. The, the distributors perceive the reps. They're working better with, with my competitive distributor than me. The manufacturers are sort of probably trying to, trying to carve out. Why don't these two people get along better? I don't want my reps competing with the distributors and the distributors competing with the reps because I have a channel strategy and a rep strategy. I want you folks to play nice together in the field, in Indiana, in Illinois, in Ohio, and 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 get along. I think that's what I've tried to do in my in my time at ERA is to build a bridge uh, between the between the manufacturer's rep location of the field and the distributor branch in the field to come up with real boots on the ground sales programs. You know how to make effective buddy calls, how to do effective distributor training, how to do rep or distributor reviews. 
to make sure that the manufacturer is happy. Because without the manufacturers, the reps have nothing to sell and the distributor has nothing to sell. So the manufacturer is the source of all profit and revenue for our industry. And I think I've tried to align those three legs of the stool and maybe a fourth leg, and maybe our stool becomes a table, and to add the customer's leg to that. Uh, and that we all need to work better together. So what I've tried to do is really continue to uh, come up with programs to align the reps and the channel and let them know that, you know, you're stronger together than you are separately. And a rep can make or break a distributor at an account, and a distributor could make or break a rep. So why don't we just get over ourselves and let's work together and, um, you know, each one of us can put money in, a, in the other one's pocket. So that's really what I've tried to do uh, and to come up with programs uh, that will help that. You know, we just announced a new hover map, uh, which, which gives some real uh, good tools uh, for both for our members. You know, we've announced an intern program that will help reps restock the pond. But I think, uh, I think I'd like sort of my legacy to be, uh, you know, building a bridge between the reps and the manufacturers and the distributors. Oh, that's great. Well, I appreciate all the time you've given me today, Walt. It's great to have you here. It's great to talk. And actually, I just have to say that I, I was I was mentioning to someone else today that having you in the industry while I've been in it has been uh, really great for me. I'm just telling you. Oh, I, thank you. I was uh, mentioning that I knew your name prior to you joining the ERA, but but after having gotten to know you, it's really it's great to have you running the organization. I know I'll look back and say the fact that I was in the industry when you were, uh, I'll definitely c consider that a good thing. So, Oh, that's very kind being, of you to say, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to say it. Well, I'm glad you had the chance to sit here with us and give us a lot of great information. So thank you again. Um, and I look forward to talking to you and seeing you soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for tuning into Great Designs, our low-pressure, content-rich environment where we cover topics related to superior designs and electronics. Our content is posted here once a month, and we hope to catch you on our next episode. Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monsta, your go-to for engaging marketing content, like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast, it's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonsta.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com.